Welcome to the Perp Web Podcast, hosted by Joe Bosch. Okay, and uh, welcome everyone to Perf Web 80, day th- three. And uh, I want to welcome everyone to the uh, to the program. Um, I'll be joined with uh, by Tammy Sparacino here momentarily. I'm doing this remotely. That's the beauty of technology. And uh, she, Tammy is also going to be remote, so it's really interesting that we're uh, going to do our first program. Uh, where we're starting kind of a new format of more like the fireside chats uh, of the past, but we're not going to call it fireside chats. We're calling this the five alarm chat conversations at the inferno. And uh, in coming days, when we're back in the studio, we'll have some cool graphics and things like that that I think you'll really enjoy. So very quickly, I do want to go through some opening remarks before I get started today. As you know, you can reach out to us by clicking contact at perfusioneducation.com. That is always available to you to uh, reach out to us and let us know what you're thinking uh, or any ideas you may have uh, for joining as a faculty, maybe a suggestion on some topics, whatever the case may be. How you get your CEUs, it doesn't make any difference. Um, Of course, you know the programs are all free, so free free to join, free to watch, free to participate. The only thing you pay for is if you need the actual CEU certificate, the ABCP uh, uh, CEUs. But uh, joining our perfusioneducation.com is free. You can call in. There's the number that you see right there below, uh, right here, 832-239-5358 if you'd like to be live on the air. Uh, We also have a scroll bar that you'll notice that has all of our YouTube channel, Facebook, Twitter, uh, uh, link in whatever else, uh, and it reminds you to make sure you to like us, share us, follow us, do all the things that you need to do. Subscribe on YouTube, leave leave uh, uh, comments because it's so important to us. The more words that get said uh, on these things, the, these platforms, the better off you are. That's just how the systems are designed and how they work. Um, and uh, let's see uh, the app. Uh, make sure you check out our critical care uh, application for perfusionists and uh, it's it has uh, perfusion stuff it has ECMO stuff it has hemodynamic monitoring stuff conversions uh, it has clinical calculators and it has uh, IV uh, rate calculator dosage and rate calculator which is also a standalone app you can get it on the Apple iStore or you can get it on Google Play either one we're very proud of the app. We just made two updates, and we're going to be making some more up, more updates. So you buy it once, you have it for your career, and uh, you're able to uh, update it as we update it. And we can, we plan on updating it uh, pretty regularly over the next several years. So it's a good app to get now while it's really inexpensive. Two dollars ninety nine cents for the uh, full clinical care application for perfusionists and then 99 cents for the standalone IV rate calculator. Of course, you know about our podcasts. You can go to any of your, whichever is your favorite podcast streaming service. There's many of them, um, Spotify, Podbean, uh, whatever else there is. And iTunes, I think is also there. You can uh, listen to us. And all of our programs are put up there uh, as a podcast. And, you know, you can drive in your car and, and, and at least hear some provocative thoughts. And maybe even uh, you might learn something or you may actually even recognize that, hey, we're maybe not seeing something 
the way you do and uh, you know participate call us up let us know be a part of the program and uh, teach us things okay because as far as I'm concerned this is a community we all need to learn the uh, from each other that's what's very important and I still learn every day okay so my topic today is actually uh, somewhat provocative. Hey, Tammy, here's Tammy Sparacino. You all know Tammy. Hi. I filled in for you. Can you hear me? Yes. Tammy? Oh, wait, I don't yes, hear I you. Can. Oh, I don't know why. I don't hear Tammy, but let me just keep working here. I'll figure that out here in a minute. Maybe it's this. Oh, there it goes. Hi. I got it. Now I hear myself. Hey, Tammy. Okay. I got it. I got it figured out. So my topic today is on disparities in ECMO outcomes. And uh, what I find fascinating is that I have spent a fair amount of time over the past couple of years looking at what I consider to be an enormous amount of data. And, and Tammy, you have too. We've spoken about ECMO so much and we have actually seen and done so much ECMO over the past uh, couple of years that I, I, more than I ever did. I thought I knew quite a bit about ECMO before the pandemic, but now after the pandemic, I feel like I really know a lot more about it than I ever thought that I'd want to. Um, but nevertheless, I've put some slides together just to get this conversation going, if you don't mind. And actually this uh, talk is the talk I'm gonna give at Texas Heart coming up but I'm gonna take a little bit of a twist and not actually give the talk in the same way I'm gonna give it at Texas Heart. So it's ECMO overview, why, how, and outcomes. So next slide. So why do we do ECMO basically? Circulatory collapse, you know, for VA, cardiogenic shock, MI, PE, postcardiotomy, failure to wean from bypass, most popular for VA, for VV, pulmonary failure, ARDS, status asthmaticus, any and any cause, any other cause of pulmonary failure in, in general. And next slide. So how do we do VA? Well, you can either do VA or you can do VV or you can do any variation of that. You can have VAV and John taught us this, but where the dash goes, in the VA, the very first one is where the oxygenator is. So you can have VAV, VVA, VAVA is in a dual circuit, or you could have VVVV also in a, well, basically it's not a tandem circuit. It's a, it's a traditional dual circuit, two ECMO circuits on one patient in those configurations, because you see there's two dashes, therefore there's two oxygenators. You can be cannulated centrally. You can be cannulated peripherally. You can be cannulated in any way you want. You can be central and peripheral. Um, it's just amazing at all the different places you can put cannulas, but the caveat to that is you have to put those cannulas in a way that you don't end up with recirculation and things like that. And thank you for going to the next slide, perfect. And there's just a schematic. You've seen this schematic a million times. I'm gonna spend almost no time on it, but it gives you some idea of the various configurations that you can have for either VA or VV or combination of the hybrid VAV of some sort or VVA, whichever is gonna be your 
primary, is it going to be circulatory support or is your primary going to be pulmonary support with additional pulmonary support if it's VA or supplemental circulatory support if it's VV? So these are all the things that you have to think about, but let's go to the next slide. Um, this is where I think this talk starts to get interesting. Um, and I'm not able to monitor anything because I'm giving the talk, so I can't be looking at YouTube. But somebody, if somebody could look at the various chats in case anybody answers this question. And Tammy, you're free to answer as well. When a physician, intensive care medicine doctor, heart surgeon, whomever, cardiologist, goes and talks to a family member and says, we really think we need to put this family member on ECMO, this patient on ECMO, um, and their chance of survival is going to be X. And these are, these are published data and pretty consistent regardless of where you go. <clears throat> these are kind of the blanket understood outcomes associated with VV, VA or VV ECMO. So Tammy, what do you think the average across the board, all cases around the world, VA ECMO survival is? It's 20% or less. 20% and for VV? I believe that's 60%. 60%. So perfect. So for the VA, the actual published average number is 40%. And for hmm. VV, it is 60%. So you are 100, you are correct on the VV, um, a little low on the VA. But of course, if it, it really depends on what you're comparing and you have to compare not the cases we typically see for VA, but all cases of which we don't see a lot of the ones that actually do get done that go on for transplant because it includes patients who are put on VA ECMO for mechanical support that are going to be put then on the transplant list or permanent device. They still are a survivor of ECMO. And I think that's where the numbers get mm -hmm. skewed. When it's post-cardiotomy because the heart isn't working, it's much, much lower than that. And that is typically what our experience is. But when you just look at numbers and somebody is giving a consult or they're, or they're doing a consent, they're gonna quote 40%. That might not be the real case in that, but that, that is the published data. So next slide. <clears throat> so you look here, this article that was written just very recently, it came out of the Society of Thoracic Surgeons 2022 by Smith and his colleagues from New York. And uh, when you look at the title, of course, one year outcomes with VV ECMO uh, for severe COVID-19. Now let's look at the next slide. And uh, I have to blow this up, guys, because I can't really read it. So forgive me. There you go. So was 30, okay? When we look down, uh, that's on the left side, top left. And you go down a little bit, and I highlighted the BMI. And, and so their patients range between 25 and 35 with an average BMI of 30, okay? Then we're going to move over to the middle the middle chart days from intubation to ECMO cannulation was two. 
with a range of mm -hmm. one to four. So average was two. Yeah, I saw your eyes. I saw those eyebrows go up, Tabby. <clears throat> if you go up a little more uh, from there and look, days from admission to intubation was 2.5. Days from admission to ECMO was 5.5. And uh, so you get a sense that these patients, I'm not, you know, when, when, when did they make the decision? Um, but we'll keep moving from there. You look over to the right side and you see that their CRT and their PCT was, uh, you know, not grossly elevated. So their inflammatory markers, neither one really showed anything extraordinary. And their PF ratio ranged between 61 and 87 with a range with a, uh, average of 80. Okay. Their peak plateau pressures on the vent were 30 with a range of 28 to 34. And their uh, uh, peak inspiratory pressures were 32 with a range of 28 to 38. And they used on average 14 of peak. Okay, so that's their patient population with an, an N of 30. Okay, next slide. Now, in 10 of the patients, and I found this very interesting, 10 of the patients, they used the cytosorb, cytokine hemoadsorption, 33% of the patients, which I think is pretty remarkable. Um, as far as cannulation was concerned, they did uh, right IJ, right femoral uh, cannulation in 28 or 93%. Alternative cannulation, of which I don't know what that was, was with two of the patients, or 6.7%. All of them were cannulated at the bedside. One required revision of cannulation. Um, now, let's move over to the next column, because I think this is going to, I'm, I'm watching Tammy's eyes. I want everybody to watch your eyes. They had a survival of 93%, 28 of the 30 survived. 27 of the 30 or 90% survived to discharge. The average duration of BVFMO was 19 days with a range of 11 to 45 days. And hmm. what's very important is discharge home was 27, 90. So of those patients that survived ECMO and came off ECMO, they survived to discharge and went home. Now, next slide. And if you look here, 26 of that 30 or 86.7% survived at one year after cannulation. Mm -hmm. Now, next slide. This article was written basically at the same time. It's out of Bonn, Germany. ASIO 2022. And the paper was written, in fact, I did the, I sat that I, that I, I uh, uh, subbed for you on uh, Tuesday, um, monitoring the cerebral oxygen saturation in interhospital transport of patients. So in this particular study, I highlighted all of the non-survivors. They only had an N of 8, 18, I'm sorry, N of 16, so about half, 
little little more than just slightly more than half of the other study with a 50% mortality. 50% survival, 50% mortality. That's an enormous difference in survival or mortality, depending on how you want to look at it. So, and they give the reasons. Liver failure, we see that. Multi-organ failure, we see that. Intracranial hemorrhage, we see that. Refractory pulmonary bleeding, we see that. Multi-organ failure, again, we see. Refractory septic shock, we see that. This is very consistent, I think, with our practice. And these are, this is BV ECMO for COVID. So we're just, we're talking apples and apples here. Okay, so next slide. Now, this article here was done, again, published in ASIO 2022. Now, this is where it gets, I think, much more robust. This is an N of 1,985. We look down at the PF ratios, and this is done, this is on an international scale, multi-center. 70 is the, uh, uh, of the survivors, they had a PF ratio of 72. Uh, 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 those that did not survive had a PF ratio of 68, but there was no statistical difference between those. Peak inspiratory pressures were between 33 and 35, average. Obesity existed a little more, all patients 61%, survivors uh, 62%, non-survivors 60.7, which brings up yet a different issue, right? Um, I've I have been hesitant to want to see somebody who's morbidly put on ECMO. We have not really seen great outcomes with that, my own experience. But there are outliers and there are patients that despite morbid obesity, supramorbid uh, super obesity, somehow survive with BMIs of 45, 55, there was one report, remember the BMI was 79. Remember that case that we presented? Um, so amazing to me that that is the case. But if you look at survival data here, 53% survived, 47% died. So again, it's pretty close to that 50% of the previous study. So next slide. And if you look here, they compared it to the RESP score. And if your RESP score is zero, then your chances of survival are about 50%. It's a 50-50 proposition. And they validated that RESP score once again. Many people have been doing that for its value. And your probability uh, index of survival on with rest the low the probability of death is you want to have a lower rest score than a higher the higher your rest score the more likely it is you're going to die okay but zero is uh the the, the in fact you look at this the predicted probability range from uh to just above 0.6 is a rest equals zero and coincided with about a 50% probability as they state down in the uh, in the text. So go ahead and uh, next slide. And then we're not gonna go over this. This is Tammy, this is the slide that I'm gonna show 
the uh, students at the THI conference when I get back that we're doing their 50th anniversary. Anybody can go online. I do tell everybody that and go to uh, uh, Google THI conference uh, 2022. It's the 50th year anniversary. They're going to be doing some really neat stuff uh, this year, including a uh, a, uh, uh, a scholarship foundation for Sal Grecho. Uh, I know Anne's going to be uh, a big. She's the one who started it. Uh, but I'm going to do use this slide for the students and have them try and figure this out. And I think it's going to be a lot of fun. Okay, so Tammy, that's the end of my slides. Um, mm -hmm. What say you? Um, well, I find it interesting. The first article that you referenced, I wonder if those patients actually needed ECMO. I don't know. Uh, their runs were really short and to have all but two, all but three survive to go home. Pretty incredible. Mm -hmm. I'd like to know what they were doing. Yeah, I found it. Um, me too. I, I really found it fascinating. Um, that that was the case because a 90% survival to going home, 90% survival getting off ECMO. Look, I mean, I know we haven't yet. Now, do you remember the various different lectures that we talked about um, during uh, when COVID was going on and how we would see these, these one-off studies that showed these but yet we were having such abysmal results. And I feel like we, I feel like we really do a great job. Um, and you have the data. I know you haven't had a chance to really digest it. This has been a, a very difficult time for all of us, right? Not just, you know, not just us, but everybody is experiencing um, some difficulties right now. But, you know, you, uh, 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 our data, I mean, I'm thinking we were around 20%. I think in maybe an aggregate, I don't know, what's your sense of how we did during the COVID pandemic? I think it was somewhere closer to 15% survival. And um, we don't have the data for one year, um, how many survived one year. I mean, if I remember the slide you had up, 27 of their 30 were alive at one year, which that's incredible. Um, their ECMO runs mm -hmm. were also very short. Uh, I think their average was uh, 11 or 12 days. Also, the second study you put up with uh, that had the um, survival rates more what are on target, you know, somewhere around 40%. Their average uh, ECMO run was 14 days. So that's really mm -hmm. short. Short for mm -hmm. COVID, anyway. Um, mm -hmm. Our ECMO runs mm -hmm. were... I would say closer to average was probably somewhere around 30 days, wouldn't you say? Or more or longer. Yeah. I mean, we, I mean, we uh, certainly, there were those short ones. Common. Yeah. The short ones that, uh, you know, maybe didn't do as well, probably brought the average mm -hmm. down. But mm -hmm. when we were putting patients on for COVID, it was very normal for us to go six weeks. That was, mm -hmm. those weren't outliers. 
that was pretty mm -hmm. normal. Um, and of course we had, you know, our, our three month, uh, patient that, that did survive and went home and mm -hmm. is doing well. Um, but we had many that were, you know, six weeks, two months, whatever it was that did not do well. Uh, we had all kinds of complications, you know, I think we had, uh, head bleeds seem like to be the most common thing, even when we were doing things without anticoagulation. Um, and just, you know, having to have so many supportive procedures, uh, you know, for all the different complications, many of our patients so had to be taken to the OR, right? Exactly. And, and, and yes, because they were blowing out pneumos, we were doing, we were clipping lungs and they were, we would clip the, the holes because it couldn't stop the air leak. And then they would blow out someplace else. So it was almost like we need to leave this hole so we don't blow out another section of the lung. Um, it yeah. was, it was a very troubling time. Well, and if you remember it, initially we were quicker to go ahead and put patients in distress on ECMO, right? Mm -hmm. That was uh, the first wave, but as, and we did better on the first wave, I think we did, we, we, um, we had somewhere, I, I believe it was around a 60 or somewhere around 60, 65% survival. Now I don't know about survival to discharge, but survival, uh, to decannulation, we can say it like that. Um, but of course it didn't stop and, and resources became shorter. And then, you know, a, a lot of, uh, clinicians, you know, hospitalists and intensivists started looking at maybe ECMO as a last resort instead of a first, uh, mm -hmm. you know, method of trying to, uh, help these patients. And, but then we also had the, it was a different variant by then. Right. So. We were having um, more severe, yeah, it was Delta. We were having more severe um, patients, uh, a lot more of them. You know, that's when we didn't have enough beds, enough machines. Uh, you know, we still had plenty of disposables, uh, but we were certainly running out of places to put these patients and those results were terrible. So it could be a combination of waiting longer um, and then the variant. And then um, of course, moving down uh, on along to, uh, we had sort of a, a little bit of a lull, right? The first part of fall 2020, um, where we just had kind of a normal amount of ECMO. But then as we moved into the end of 2020 and early 2021, um, I think that's when they started establishing more guidelines, at least in our areas, uh, about uh, length of time that the patients could be on the ventilator before they were considered uh, no longer uh, candidates eligible for ECMO. And so we started sort of seeing that where they were drawing the line and saying anything more than seven to 10 days, they weren't gonna uh, you know, accept patients for transfer or consider them for ECMO. Cause again, we were still um, having to choose patients that we thought ECMO could help them uh, recover because we had patients in line in our ICUs waiting for whatever the next step was going to be for them. You know, some of them were, had already been maxed out on the vent, had been prone, had done everything, but there are also no, no more ECMO machines for them to even 
use on them and no places for them to go because all the hospitals were mm -hmm. full. So how do we explain? At that time, how, go ahead, I'm sorry. No, I was just going to say, so at that time, it's really trying to pick who is the best, best candidate to use our very limited resources so that we can, you know, actually give the best candidate the chance for survival because mm -hmm. choosing one person means you're declining another, right? Or, uh, you know, many others. Mm -hmm. How many, how many total ECMOs would you say we did in that, uh, in that, let's say 18 month period over a hundred? Uh, yeah, I would say we're somewhere right around there. Uh, a hundred, 110, something like that. So they did. And I don't third. have I don't have the data in front of me, but generally speaking, I think that's that's pretty um, pretty good guess. Mm -hmm. So they did thirty. Had we only done thirty, do you think our outcomes could have been better? And yes, how do you explain? So why, in other words, how do we explain? Sir, you know, 93%, 93.6% survival to decannulation, 90% survival to home discharge. Um, how do we explain that in, well, you know, and I think there's a lot of things, right? I think there's a you lot know, of things to, to think about, center. you know, um, I think that we put on many patients that were not good candidates. Um, in the beginning, it was, you know, um, we weren't looking at a lot of things, you know, how many, many days they've been on the vent, how large they were, you know, and um, we, you know, we came to learn that, that that mattered because we ran out of rotoprone beds, right? So we're manually proning them, very difficult to do. Um, those patients often had other complications just from being large and, and, and laying in the beds. Then we uh, started thinking about, well, we need to ambulate these patients. And the larger patients are definitely harder to ambulate. And then we need to be careful how we're cannulating because that's hard to ambulate. Um, but, and then it eventually started going where it was, okay, let's not do older patients, right? We're just doing sort of middle-aged-ish patients. But then those weren't or our young. patients anymore. You're right. It became mm -hmm. young patients. And then when it was a young patient, I feel like if we had a bed available and an ECMO machine available, even if they were not good candidates, they had already been, you know, uh, vented for a very long time, or perhaps they had other complications going on. They were also in renal failure. Um, you know, we put on several patients simply because they were young. And I think, of course, that's something to consider um, when you're making, you know, medical decisions. This person is very young, and, and young people tend to have better ability for recovery. However, in our experience with these patients that were um, had severe um, COVID pneumonia, that wasn't necessarily the case, and so therefore we put on patients that had very little chance of survival anyway. That's mm -hmm. what I think, which also yeah, increased we, our numbers. So, so my analysis, and I'm assuming it's yours as well, just predicated on, on, on your, uh, your comments 
is that that very high percentage rate is achievable if your selection process is extremely tight. Because I would right. imagine that their mortality rate for COVID patients that did not receive ECMO as an option was probably quite high. Yeah, that's actually something that I've thought about many times that I wish we hadn't. And when I say we, I just mean, generally speaking, the healthcare community that we're in, because of course, this isn't necessarily something that would fall under um, perfusion because we don't necessarily have access to this data. But I wish our community had not been so overwhelmed like everyone else, but still to be able to track the patients that came in were admitted to the ICU, um, had severe COVID pneumonia and did not get ECMO and then mm -hmm. line those up with the patients that got ECMO and then look at the outcomes from all of them. I'd re I really think that would be very interesting to know because we work in that community would be fascinating. And although we work in some larger community hospitals, um, you know, they, mm. they have a pretty decent ICU bed uh, space available. Many, many, many of those patients made their way to our little corner of the ECMO uh, of the ICU, which kind of became our ECMO center. Right. And I think we had a very high percentage of the amount of patients that came through that um, were se severely uh, had severe respiratory failure had the opportunity for ECMO. And I think looking at uh, perhaps other places data that, you know, ruled out, or maybe they only had, you know, one machine or two machines to be able to use. So therefore mm -hmm. you're automatically tighten, tightening your, um, you know, your ability to be able to um, analyze which patients are going to be able to have ECMO as an option. So we yeah, had your, the luxury. Your, criteria, your inclusion criteria. Right. 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 Uh, we had we, the luxury we, of having many machines available, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, as we had as many as, as, as some medical centers do. And so there the opportunity six, to put a lot more people on. We had 16 at one time when Methodist Texas Medical Center, this is COVID only, obviously. Um, was limited to, was limited to eight. Mm -hmm. So think about that in the community. And we had people, you know, of course, family members calling up and asking, do you have an ECMO machine? And when yes. their loved one transferred to the house, we took many transfers when no one else would take the transfer for whatever reason. And so, you know, it's disappointing to me and difficult for me, and I'm assuming you, I think all of our, in our entire team has been affected by a, what appeared to be abysmal outcomes. You know, 15% survival is pretty tough. It's a, that's, a, that's an 85% mortality. I mean, you spend a tremendous amount of time with these people and you develop a relationship with their families. You may even get to know them because we were waking them up and we were trying to PT them uh, we were involved in these people's care, but at the same time, they had a chance with us where in many other institutions, 
they were not getting that option. They were not getting right. that last opportunity. It might not have worked, but I don't know that that necessarily says, although I think we could always do things better. I think we learned a lot from this experience. I learned a tremendous amount, more than I've ever wanted to know. And I'm hoping that I don't live long enough to ever have, ever have to utilize everything that I learned from this experience. But the places that did fewer, far fewer, and had better results, 30 compared to, so we did probably four times more than did this center. Uh, but, you know, published, they have published, although the other center uh, in Bonn, Germany, theirs was only 50%. And again, they had far fewer. They only had 16 and N of 16 during the same period of time. So we were really giving people a chance that probably had no chance. But then on the other hand, we don't actually know that. And it's such a conundrum. It's such an ethical dilemma. Because when you talk about, about uh, 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 oh God, the Zumba instructor. Huh, I can't think of her name. Michelle. Michelle, yeah, Michelle. Michelle Tate. When you think about her, she was at that point if we can't do anything else with her. We just can't. Well, right. We, and we, you know, as you said in your, your, your opening remarks, we had several that we did not think um, they had reached past their point of being able to recover. And people were starting to think about what our next steps. And, you know, these were long periods of time uh, with patients that were not doing well. Um, and we had She some... was exsanguinating, if you remember, out of her mouth. They had mm -hmm. to pack it. She was bleeding profusely. I remember, and when they changed out the gauze, and I'm like, we're having to transfuse her, just over mouth bleeding. But she's not was, the only was, one that and were she went, and she had incredible, home. incredible, incredible um, recovery. You know, uh, I remember another patient that was, you know, during the towards the end and was a much younger patient, you know, younger than me by more than a decade, um, probably almost two decades and um, was very, very ill and um, just kept, you know, uh, you know, and it, this is when we were wanting to ambulate them and do PT, but we couldn't even keep this person awake long enough to try to get them used to having sort of a semi-consciousness and, you know, just languishing away in the bed and vents were never right, but yet that patient was always miserable. They were always in pain because you didn't want to give them too much sedation. Um, we needed to make sure that they sort of stayed awake, but they were moaning, you know, pretty much the whole day. They'd sleep for an hour, wake up and be miserable. And this went on for weeks and weeks and weeks. And I had already thought this patient's not going to make it. They've made zero improvement. They had been vented a pretty long time before we put them on ECMO. And four weeks after the, I guess it was about six weeks in, four weeks after that, we had that person off of ECMO and being discharged to, you know, uh, a rehabilitation mm -hmm. center. Um, so so here's, we had here's my thought. 
Yeah, and, we had more than one miracle, on. and I don't know why. Mm -hmm. And this is neither do I, and I wish I knew. So here's how I look at it. And tell me if you think I'm cracked or if you think this is a reasonable thought. Had we been, if we just take the patients that we had a good feeling, this patient's going to go on ECMO, be on it for a week or two, they're going to come off ECMO, they're going to do well. Of that population, our survival's probably 80%, maybe 80% plus that we knew. There was going to be, there's always, there was always somebody that like, the patient was, we put them on ECMO, they pinked right up, they looked great, yeah. early intervention, and yet they still went on to, uh, to die. So, but if you just take a very select part, a very select population of our, our, our whole, our survival probably just as high, maybe not as high as what you saw in, New, in the study in New York I showed you, but probably pretty high. I'll bet you 80%, certainly over 70%. I do believe it's close to 80%. Yeah, I would say 70%, 75%, something like that. And if you, and that's a small number. Now, if you take the other chunk of the patients we did where our mortality is abysmal, which dilutes all of whatever successes we had, those patients likely would not have been offered ECMO other places. And of those, we saved two or three. Right. That's what it comes down to. Right. Is we were, well, and, and I think, so you don't think I'm crazy or, or self-serving because I believe, I believe we, put people on ECMO that other people would have refused. Correct. I think you're exactly right. And I think that, you know, if you look at it from the, the perspective that those people likely would not have been offered ECMO other places and likely would not have recovered with any other type of interventions, proning, you know, and all the different things everyone was doing, then of course it's well worth it. Um, the only hesitation I have in saying that is we don't know who we didn't save because we didn't have the resources available. Uh, you know, transfers that, you know, I don't know. I mean, it's absolutely worth it for anyone who survived it. You know, of course, and we want as many mm -hmm. people to have ECMO be a successful therapy um, and in any way that we can save a life. Um, we had the data to compare about all the patients that never got to the stage of ECMO and, mm -hmm. and did not make it, you know, mm -hmm. I'd love to look at who they were, you know, what they had. Um, what kind of state they were in uh, before mm -hmm. the ultimate demise. Because, you know, these patients, mm -hmm. they come in, they can be very ill, and at one point they can kind of peak. You know, that's their best opportunity for whatever intervention you're going to do, and they either respond to it or they don't. Um, and if they don't, then, of course, there's that turning point where you see that they are, are just going to continually get worse. They start having further complications after complications, and it just goes down from there. You know, I think mm -hmm. that 
Um, at some point, we may have access to this data, maybe not our specific hospitals, but there will be larger centers, larger uh, research groups that get together and really look at this. And I think that um, th those numbers are going to be very interesting. I think so, too. So let me ask you this, if I can. I know we have a patient currently with uh, 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 human meta pneumonia uh, on ECMO, which, you know, I had never really heard of that, but I understand it's usually uh, relatively mild, you know, symptoms and people recover from it very easily. But this patient did not, had had a, had a congenital heart defect, had an ASD repair. 20 years old, they're now 43 years old. Um, and I know that they have uh, had some some children who also have some genetic difficulties. So I think genetic, genetically associated diseases. So I'm assuming that this patient has make some genetic flaw uh, that is causing a relatively simple uh, virus to wreak havoc. And I know that they're, they've been on now for almost three weeks and do not seem to be improving, uh, though still I think it's three weeks failure. today. Three weeks, three weeks today. today. But remain single organ failure. So we are doing, right. and I think that's something about ECMO. And of course, what are we going to do with this patient? You know, you put the patient on ECMO, um, are they going to recover? And you don't know. So you just keep going and keep going because we have had patients who everyone believed was not going to recover. And they're, and they're not many, they're very few, but how do we know who that is? And it leaves us in such an, it's a very, it's an ethical dilemma, especially when you're really using these resources and you don't have any more and you're having to turn people away because you don't have the, 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 the bandwidth, the, 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 the tools, the, ECMO pumps, the oxygenators, in in which to say, sure, we'll do yet another one. It's so well, incredibly Well, and if I can interrupt you for one second, it's even beyond that. I think the entire healthcare um, industry is, is very understaffed. So it's the human factor as mm -hmm. well, being able to take mm -hmm. care of whether it be ECMO patients or just other seriously um, critically ill patients, um, all, all, all areas of the hospitals we work in, they're all in need of additional staff. We're in need of additional staff. They we are, are we're um, hiring. We are hiring we, in case yeah. you're watching. Um, but, you know, so, so that that's there. something else you have to factor in too, because, mm. you know, although, uh, have a different dynamic uh you know they're scheduled for shifts and they can either take extra shifts or not take extra shifts um but you know you can burn out your current staff which then leads you to have even less staff so mm -hmm. i think the healthcare uh communities in a real crisis right now we we need more people to care for all these uh ill patients you know Agreed. we really do and agree I know that a lot of people are doing traveling now, you know, I think that's a, it's very helpful, especially in, you know, communities that don't have a lot of resources for additional staff, but those travelers come from somewhere and they usually come from the bigger cities that have 
you know, the lots of staff, right? So the we're, big cities are suffering too, uh, maybe even more so than rural areas because that's where the host travelers are coming from. So we're, we're yes. really feeling that pain. And COVID did not cure heart disease. Heart disease yeah. still existed. It didn't cure mm -hmm. cancer. Cancer still existed. It didn't cure peripheral vascular disease. It still existed. It didn't cure uh, esophageal varices. That still existed. It didn't cure other, you know, just whatever disease you want to whatever talk about it is it and right. people up in the hospital. So those those people, and of course we have, we it, it, it this gets talked about a lot, but I don't think we really know impact was but all those people did not get care they didn't get the care they a lot of them fell through the cracks and uh so we may have saved these two patients that had covid that we saved with ecmo through heroic measures and determination and unwillingness to quit although many 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 died but we saved those two or three but how many died to save those two or three, because mm -hmm. as you said, the resources aren't there. They are not there. I can't do this again. I, I, this is my second wave to 2009 with H1N1. I know you were a perfusionist at that time as well. Now this was far worse. I thought, I thought H1N1 was pretty bad. This was far, far worse. And I just don't think I have, uh, I don't think I can do it. I don't think I have the ability to do it. And I don't know that our younger colleagues, after having seen this, want to do it again either. And so no. I think it's inevitable. I mean, we have to happen. hope that we have to hope that we have nothing like this happen again. I mean, of course, we know something will happen again, but we have to hope that we have some sort of long reprieve. Or a plan or or actually we bolster our numbers, whether it be perfusionists or physicians or nurses or x-ray techs or whatever the case may be, hospital beds, everything that's involved with all of this, um, organs for transplant, you, you name it, you and, and learn from this, really collect this data and really learn. I'll be interested to see the, the, the data that's coming out over the next few years and better prepare for this ever happening again, because mm -hmm. we were not prepared. This was done, look, I mean, I have no problem telling anyone that we took an ECMO pump from a decommissioned ECMO pump from a hospital in the medical center that was in their storeroom, and it was very, um, not very simplistic, but we had that brought, we brought it in a rider truck to a hospital and got it up in the unit, set it up, figured out how to turn it on and make it work. And we had that patient on ECMO for a good long while before we transitioned them to a different device, just so we, we had put a couple, that patient on ECMO. Right. We had a couple of patients like that, right? But one in particular was on for a very long time uh, before, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and we, we had people waiting on the, the ECMO waiting list, right? And so that patient mm -hmm. made it to the ECMO mm -hmm. waiting list for being able to get one of our more updated ECMO machines. 
Um, I mean, I think we were incredibly creative in the way that we tried to find resources uh, as the hospital requested and for um, as the hospital needed for specific patients. Um, mm -hmm. But you're right, there, there was not enough of anything. I like that, creative. Very good, that's true. We were creative, that's for sure. And it worked. So anyway, well, I'm going to, if it's okay with you, I'm gonna end seven minutes early today. This was our okay. first, uh, our first uh, uh, attempt at the five alarm chat conversations at the inferno we're going to work on some graphics and when we're in the studio next time i think that it will be uh, a lot of fun we're gonna david's gonna create some graphics that i think you're going to enjoy and uh, i'd like to keep this going and do more of this kind of format because i think that it's very informative it's somewhat structured there was a point to it but it was pretty free flowing and it goes pretty quick i mean look it's almost it's almost been an hour it's seven minutes short of an hour it goes fast Mm -hmm. And I want to thank you for taking the time. I know you've had a very busy week, busy couple of weeks, and uh, I just appreciate you. So I know everybody else does too. Everybody watching appreciates your uh, your input and your uh, your thoughts on this because they're always so uh, so incredibly well thought out. And uh, wow. and I think you have some terrific perspectives on what the hell we're doing here. So thank you. Absolutely. And, well, thank uh, you for. Um, coming to us live from outside the studio. Uh, we both got to utilize this uh, new program and format to be able to be remote. And I, I think, uh, the, on, at least on my end, everything looks crystal clear. So good job back at the studio. Thanks, guys. I know they did. They did a great job with that. And I guess Joe locked up. <laughs> He's paying us a compliment as as he freezes up. Uh, I guess I guess you're gonna have to close us out then, Tammy. All right. Looks like right when we were complimenting our how neat we are with technology, um, we had a technical difficulty on Joe's side. So I want to thank everyone for joining us today. Uh, this is the conclusion of this PerfWeb series, and we will have our next program, I believe. Uh, towards the end of June. Yeah, it'll be June 23rd. Um, June 23rd will be the first date of our next PerfWeb, and we're going to have lots of speakers. That's going to be one of our bigger programs, and we'll have lots of uh, different topics that uh, I think we will find of interest. We do have all of the uh, agenda posted on the PerfWeb uh, website, and you can go to schedule and view that. And also one more time, we'll, we'll bring up the um, Texas Art Institute School of Perfusion is celebrating its 50th year. They will be having a conference uh, coming up in June. Joe and I will both be speaking at it and they will have it in person and um, a virtual. So if you're interested in that, please go ahead and go to Texas Art Institute Perfusion Conference and you can look at how to register and be able to uh, either join them in person or view it there. And with that said, David and everyone back at the studio, thank you so much. And we appreciate you joining us. Everyone have a great day.